Sword, Sorcery, and Socialism, a podcast about the politics and themes hiding in our genre fiction. As always, I'm Darius, and with me is my co-host, Ketho. How's it going, Ketho? It's going pretty good. My voice is now cleaner. I know we've got, both of us now have kind of real mics. We're you don't have to, have to listen up. to my old laptop headset anymore. Moving on up. This is this is what we do with the big bucks. Um, today... We are going to be talking about a, a sort of a pet topic of mine. We are doing our first official dive into the Lord of the Rings. Now, of the endless things I will talk about about Lord of the Rings eventually on this podcast. I'm sorry, all of you who aren't huge Tolkien heads. My apologies. I'm a fanboy. Get over it. Uh, today, though, we're, as I mentioned last time, we're sort of continuing a little theme here about various versions of utopia. And I wanted to talk about specifically the Shire because I have seen a number of people of, you know, sort of the sort of anarchist variety, more of the, I don't know what you want to call it, but sort of the more pastoral, I guess, inclined people say that the Shire sort of represents a, a, a kind of utopia. I don't know if you've seen this online, Kethel, but I know I have. That's maybe because I participate in Tolkien discourse regularly. <laughs> participate in the Tolkien discourse. Trust me, there's plenty. Um, so, and again, I've seen this, this idea that the Shire represents sort of an idyllic life for a lot of people that there's a lot of things in there to be like, I guess you could use those goals, things you would want to do or look for in a pretty idyllic world. And I want to talk about that idea today because I think it is both right and wrong. And I think I want to start off by talking about the things about that, that are, that are right. The things about the Shire that are actually cool and good. Now, I, I also want to make clear as we start, I don't think I'm going off the rails by claiming that the Shire is more or less what the author, the, the good professor himself, would have described as being utopia. <laughs> I think that's pretty, uh, that's pretty su- uh, cold take. <laughs> pretty ice cold take for me is that if Tolkien could create a world that in his mind would be as close to perfect as possible, it would be the Shire. I mean, he described himself as a hobbit. It's clearly the place he had the most love for. So when I'm so when I'm describing in this conversation about whether it's a utopia or not, I may, you know, reference it as being, you know, his version of utopia. And I just wanted to make it clear that I don't think that's a wild take to claim that this is his version, not just a version within his book. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I don't think even he would argue that like Gondor was utopia or anything like uh, that. No, no, no. He wouldn't. <laughs> he wouldn't argue that like the Manish kingdoms are utopia. I mean, I, he's almost. I don't know. I feel like almost the way he presents it, because the the Age of Man comes after like a long downslide, essentially. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where the Age of Man is necessary and inevitable, but also kind of bad, but also yeah. kind of good. He's like, it's oh. A, it's the March of Progress. Oh, and he like starts to vomit a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it's a very we'll talk about his worldview at some point, like uh, because I, I think it's better it, than Mordor, I guess. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, Gondor's good because it reminds him of things farther in the past that were even better. So the Shire, what is good about the Shire? I think what's good about the Shire is the things that spring to most people's mind immediately when you talk about it. And for you, if I, you know, you just, you random, random person, sir, if I say, what, what, what's the Shire like? What are like those sort of first things that pop into your head? Um, it is very pastoral, cozy. Homes are cozy. You get to kind of lay around. Well, some the people it's meant for get to lay around but all day. The, what I'm saying is you had to correct yourself there because your first thought was you get to lay around. Yeah, right? that was the first, was the first, first initial thought. Because okay. I mean, we'll get, yeah, we'll get into that. So your first thought, it's cozy. It's pastoral. It's 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 comfy. It's homely. I would also say that homely in the British sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would also say that generally most people would tend to think it as being some very fairly relaxed. Right. Like he talks all the time about how the hobbits spend time chilling. They have parties. They like go to the inn all the time. You know what I mean? It's very like it's slow paced. People just sort of farm and hang out. And it is a very idyllic picture. And on the one hand, a lot of that stuff is pretty cool. I mean, depending on your specific idea of how society should be structured, you know, if you're like a, I don't know, sort of like a techno futurist or something like obviously the Shire is not great for you, but if you're, if you're big into sort of the, like, you know, that pastoral ideal, the sort of like everything's covered in plants. Most people are generally doing some version of, uh, you know, self-sustaining farming, um, your small communities where there's little to no oversight by government of any type at all to enforce any rules. Everyone just sort of gets along. See, as described, as described right now, sounds pretty great because that's, that's the Shire you get right more or less. And particularly the one I think people imagine in their minds is like, you know, farmer maggot just like hangs out and farms. You know what I mean? Like people just like sort of live their lives, do what they want to do. The community is all sort of there. Everyone knows each other. Everyone gets along more or less. They're just like family spats, but uh. yeah, violence is essentially unknown within the Shire. Like there's no like interpersonal violence to speak of within the Shire. There's no like theft or assault or anything like that. At least it's mentioned. So, I mean, Mary and Pippin. Yeah, but they're, it, even their like stuff of like setting off fireworks and stuff are, is more like mildly inconvenient hijinks. Yeah, that's and not that's like property crime. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it's viewed very differently. And so, for all these reasons, that stuff is that's good. Like all those things are things that I I would want in um, you know, from a society that I lived in. You know, like they technically have sort of a cop called the sheriff. There's a few of them, uh, but the sheriff spelled freaking weird. Yeah. It's yeah. sheriff as in Shire reef reeve. It's English. Don't it's from old English reeve, which yeah. was a position within feudal England. It's a whole yeah. thing. Just so everybody knows there's two R's and two F's. Yes, because it's Tolkien and he had to do an etymology of his own language. That's also and an, based on And it's off only eyes. There's no, there's no E. Yeah, it's, it's a, sh- it's a, a, sheriff, a sheriff. Cause again, it's a Shire. Yeah. Yeah. But they exist, but their entire thing is like, 
finding lost farm animals is kind of their deal. They don't really like do crime and punishment. There's no prisons. (laughs) Well, sort of. They're like, they have the capacity to do so, but it's pretty clearly described that like, there's really never a need need for it. Um, it is specifically like, uh, an addition of Saruman when as, as Sharky, he takes over the Shire at the end of the novel and they do the scouring of the Shire. It's specifically an introduction of his and his men of like prison cells and locking people up. Like that's the thing that they do. So it's clearly like Tolkien clearly presents it as a bad thing. Like the idea of having industrial society brings prisons. Yes. Which I think would not be that controversial of a point among a lot of people, at least of our sort of milieu. Right. I mean, yeah, they probably would. We'd probably go back far enough and be like, civilization has prison state force society. But but you could argue that like, you could argue that Saruman and his men taking over the Shire are essentially introducing um, centralized state violence because up until that point, again, there's like three sheriffs, four sheriffs in the entire, uh, like in the entirety of the Shire. It's like, it's not like they can go around locking people up because they just can't. Right. Yeah. Once once Saruman takes over, suddenly Shire has made all the material conditions ready for the abolition of prisons. So again, I you're joking, but I don't think you're entirely wrong. Yeah. Well, good about the Shire is that generally society has been has organized in a way that incarceration is not necessary. Yes. Um, At least from the perspective of the person writing it. Correct. So. Which obviously is the perspective that we have. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's all the only. That's really the only perspective there. There is. I don't know. I don't um, know. Yeah, whatever. So um, I, I, I would, ar- I would argue that that is like a point Tolkien was trying to make: is that Hobbit society is harmonious enough, and everyone is cared for enough that the sort of 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 crimes that we of that we in our modern society imagine people being locked up for just don't happen generally. They're just the, you know, the preconditions for crime have more or less been eliminated within the Shire. Okay. All of that to me, pretty sweet. That's pretty sweet. You get to chill. You get to farm. You get to drink a lot. You get to party. No one goes to jail. You hang out with the homies all day, more or less. Like, seems pretty dope. Go out, do what you want. Yeah. Everyone goes to the fucking inn at the end of the day to the Green Dragon like those little jig. Yeah, everyone, even the people that don't really like each other, it's more just a like, I don't like that guy. But that's it. You know what I mean? There's no like sort of inter community scuffles or anything like that. That is all pretty, pretty sweet. And I think that's all you would get if you just sort of read, just kind of read the book once, or particularly if you just watch the movie. That's all you're going to get because you only see really the idyllic bits. But. The reason why I talk about it is because if you dig into it just a little bit, there's kind of a lot going on there that I would argue is not super cool. Number one, not everyone just gets to hang out all day doing yeah. nothing. I'm about to say it's not in everybody the, in the book. We definitely see people just hanging out doing nothing all day, but what we don't realize is because all four, three, sorry, three of the four, main characters that are hobbits are all children of wealthy, privileged families. 
who have literally so actually (laughs) and have literally never had to work a day in their lives. Frodo has Frodo, despite, you know, he is an orphan, unfortunate, uh, then adopted by his fabulously rich uncle. Yeah, the uncle who was already rich before he came back with the shit. Yeah, we're talking we're talking we're talking Bilbo before he stole money from a dragon. Bilbo was already rich. And then Frodo never got even more. And then he got even more rich, which is just an indicator of the fact that Bilbo could afford to just leave his property for like a year. It just shows you again that uh, the only way to get rich is to already be rich. So Frodo's never worked a day in his life because he's like the heir of a massive fortune. Pippin is the child of one of the three most important families in the entirety of the Shire. Uh, The other two being the Bagginses and the Brandy Bucks, who we're going to get to in a second. And the, the, the Tooks are one of the oldest and most prestigious and rich families in the entirety of the Shire. And Mary is a Brandy Buck who is the child of, uh, of, of a guy who is literally the ruler of an autonomous region of the Shire. Because uh, Buckland is not officially part of the Shire. It's a territory that was colonized by hobbits that is adjacent to the Shire, but not within its boundaries. It is outside the boundaries of the four farthings, north, south, east, and west. And so he is an autonomous um, ruler, more or less, of a hobbit area. It's like a a hobbit colony. (laughs) It's a hobbit colony. um, I mean, it's only hobbits. that, That is ruled over by... A hereditary lord is too strong of a word, but like it's kind of a lord. Obviously, Tolkien goes through great lengths to explore that these titles we're about to talk about are almost entirely symbolic and figureheads. But I want to highlight that it's mostly they still do have power. I think I think a vast majority just something I've noticed is that a vast majority of um, utopias when devised like we're talking say like even like Starship Troopers if you're considering it a utopia from the perspective of Heinlein in this instance the Shire being what is probably a utopia from the perspective of Tolkien there's always at least one contrivance where they just have to wave away an explanation about something or they yeah. have to like double down and be like oh it's actually not this way when it's clear that it would end up that way Regardless. And the contrivance here is that though the Shire has three positions of authority that we're going to talk about, two of which are are um, inherited, that society is organized in such a way that those positions are almost entirely symbolic and don't actually have to ex- exercise power. And the people within them then almost unfailingly choose not to exercise power from those yeah, positions. That's essentially that yeah. hobbits by nature don't do that sort of authoritarian stuff. So yeah, that's this, sort of his this contri- utopia would be like, and yeah, you can't be human. <laughs> yeah. His contrivance, literally his contrivance here is that only hobbits can do this because only hobbits have the inherent personalities to not seek to dominate, which you can't, say is a throwaway thing because it's literally integral to the plot of the entire story. That's why Frodo and Bilbo could hold the ring for so long without it. Cause they don't have the ambition to it's because they do, do not, it. it's because they do not have the ambition to rule. 
like the ring plays on people's ambitions to be powerful. That's what the ring does. The ring is domination. And so the fact that hobbits have no inherent desire to dominate others is why Frodo and Bilbo are uniquely suited to hold the ring for so long without succumbing to it. So you can't say that that's an integral part to the story. You can't argue otherwise, but that is also necessary for Hobbit society to function the way he set it up for these positions to not be like authoritarian rulers <laughs> is Hobbit just have to inherently not be authoritarian just because they are. Yeah. Now it's like, it's, you it's... might argue as some anarchists might that given enough years within a society that is constantly battling against authoritarian overreach and hierarchy that you could essentially reach a society where people more or less would generally choose to not be that way. But given the length of the time the Shires existed, I feel like it's impossible. If there were men, it would be even, even Tolkien would argue that if they were men doing this, one of them would have just become King by now. Yeah. I mean, the, I mean, that's why the that's why the mortal men couldn't handle having their own rings, because they above they above all other things desire power. So so this is this is like the thing about this. I think from Tolkien's perspective is that unlike Heinlein, who is like prescribing what the world should look like, the Shire is what Tolkien wishes the world could be like, but doesn't think the world could ever be like. Correct. I think that is a key difference is that Heinlein is like, this is what the world should be like. And I think we could make it that way. Tolkien is saying, this is what I wish the world could be, but it will never be this way because humans are incapable of it. So I do think is an important caveat. Yes. Um, I think that makes the Shire like an interesting study distinct from most utopian fiction. Like if we're talking uh, or utopian elements in fiction, like yeah. if we're t- again, if we're talking Starship Troopers, that's prescriptive. Even if you're talking something like, even if you're talking something like The Dispossessed, there's mm-hmm. a there's a lot of clear belief in the potentiality of it mm-hmm. present in those. Like, you know, even if you're uh, the news from nowhere, it's like these are stories written by people to explore the potentiality of the thing that they're talking about. And that believe that something similar to it is possible. Um, whereas Tolkien using utopian elements in fiction is almost using it as a foil to say that everything else. Th- this may have been true once upon a time, but it is not a thing that we can any longer. Accomplish. See, I don't, I don't even know if he believes that it was a thing. No, he draws point. on a lot of elements from older England. Uh, like, but I think. Uh, uh, but I think you're right. I don't think he even he believes this ever actually existed. Yeah, because could. I because I mean, Tolkien understood. I mean, honestly, Gondor and things like that are far more in line with the romanticized vision of what medieval Europe looked like. Yeah, Gondor and Rohan, because Rohan specifically is just Anglo-Saxons. Yeah, that's like it's very it's very like British Isles. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. So you're right. I think that he is. Yeah, sort of designed a utopia that he doesn't think could ever be. He's just he's just daydreaming <laughs> with yeah. the Shire and wishing he was Bilbo sitting on a yeah. freaking stump smoking so pipe. That, so that does two things. One, it sort of excuses us from like, you know, a little bit of the criticism of him because even he's like, this couldn't really actually work. 
but I still think it's worth discussing sort of these other parts of it, even in his utopia that he thinks is too good to be true. Yeah, because it still, still tells has you something. A, still has authoritarian elements within it. Now, okay, it's a stretch to call the actual hobbits as written authoritarian, but we have to imagine putting them in the hands of men, of people. So I, sorry, when I, when I, in this conversation, when I say in the hands of men, I'm speaking of it in the way that Tolkien references these things when he uses men as the species, you know what I mean? I'm yeah. not trying to be gendered here. And I mean, saying that only, I mean men, only the males could have these roles, even though in his world they do. I, when I say men specifically in this context, I'm speaking the way Tolkien writes about it, which is, you know, men, the mankind, race, mankind as opposed to hobbits or <coughs> elves or whatever. Even though so, hobbits are like a weird offshoot of man. Yeah. Hobbits are an offshoot of men. Let's not get into that right now. Yeah, the genealogy of the stuff in, in Tolkien's work is something super contentious, even from his own perspective. So, yeah, he contradicts really himself frequently. Uh -huh. So, but so for us, we're imagine we're we're imagining Hobbit society as one that could be made up of people, of non-Hobbit people. So let's look again those those sort of negative elements that stand out pretty quickly. Let's talk. I must first talk about the smaller ones that people might not know about much. I'm going to finish with Bilbo. Bilbo and Frodo are okay. eponymous heroes. Let's start with, let's start with, uh, again, we already kind of mentioned it, but let's, let's talk about Buckland. So Buckland, like I said, is an autonomous Shire colony that's adjacent to the Shire. It officially becomes part of the Shire after Aragorn becomes king and reconstitutes the kingdom of Arnor. Don't worry about it. The head of Buckland is just called the master of Buckland. And the master of Buckland is just the head of the Brandy Buck family mm -hmm. who is just, I'm assuming the oldest living male at the time, or I think actually I'm pretty sure it's not the oldest living. It's not seniority. It's just started from whoever founded the house of Brandy Buck and then his eldest child, the eldest son, son going on down. Um, doesn't actually have the so I'm looking at right now doesn't even have a does the exact genealogy, but essentially it is yeah it's a it's a it's a hereditary position that gets passed down from father to son, and they have authority over uh, over Buckland and the Marish technically in East Farthing, even though again they mostly don't do anything they are the ones that can sound an alarm to marshal people to battle during the scouring of the Shire Buckland actually doesn't get taken over because they pull up the bridges and anytime the men try to cross the bridges they get shot at with bows and arrows and Buckland also has a wall oh yeah it's, it's like, got the hedge it's got it's got the high hedge and they have gates and stuff but so this is again a, essentially a hereditary lord over an autonomous region that's not even part of the greater Shire. Now, if you think that could go on for a long time in the hands of people uh, without one of them being like, it'd be cool to have more power. I think you're fooling yourself. It'd be cool to start extracting more rents from the people I from, live on my land. From, my, from the entire clan that lives in, who lives in, who live in what essentially one giant building more or less yeah. a giant complex uh, of their hall, a brandy hall. Like obviously that's, they live in there, but also the East, that whole area is populated by many other families of hobbits who let's be clear, all exist on land owned by the, the controlled by the master of Buckland. And I guarantee you pay rent because that's yes. how the, that's how the brandy bucks make their money. 
Yeah, they absolutely. I mean, they would have to tithe. Like it's it's they, it's they literally imagine this is this is, and we're gonna talk into uh, getting into it now. I think sort of the main conceit of what's what would, the bad part of the Shire is. It's essentially set up like late feudal England. But say it's still a very very specifically and very strictly a class society. It's a class society. It's feudal England before enclosure is what it is because you have these big farmlands and grazing pastures and all this other stuff, but they're all owned by landlords. They're all owned by a ruling class who pass their land down via inheritance and the people that don't own the land pay rent on it. Like, so that guarantee that is what's happening in Buckland. That is how the brandy books make all their money. Mary has never had a job and will and does will does never have a job until he on his own time becomes master of Buckland. By the way, again, of our four main Hobbit characters, three of them go on to be the three most important people in the entire Shire. And the other one leaves Middle Earth. Forever. The other one leaves and goes to heaven. Essentially. <laughs> Elf so, heaven. Yeah. So, to await the end of the world. Let's go. Well, uh, now he goes there and dies. Yeah, yeah. But say but, they die when they get over there. But, uh, but like, so Mary, regardless of the adventure of Lord of the Rings, Mary was going to end up as Master of Buckland, one way or the other. He was going to end up in this position. So wow. Like, I'm, ima- it, I'm trying to imagine pre-leaving the Shire Mary. He's a spoiled little brat. That's why well, they'd be stealing crap. Actually, actually, let's be clear. Uh, book Mary is much less of a brat. That's true. Yeah, we're definitely thinking a movie because uh, book they're Mary, a lot more mature. Book, book Mary is actually a, like basically the same age as Sam and Frodo, and is about uh, more responsible. Pippin is the child of them, and he's the one that's more like impish. Mm-hmm. Uh, they made Mary more Pippin like for the movies, so they'd have a better sort of buddy cop dynamic. Um, but still, he just would have been in hair position. He just would have had. Like he just gets to be master of Buckland and hang out all day. Speaking of Pippin, Pippin is a Took. The Tooks actually hold the title, uh, the head of the Took family, hold the longest like reigning title in the Shire, which is that of Thane. Yeah, I was about to say, I th- I think it's arguable that the Tooks are the most powerful family in the Shire. They are. They 100% are, in, in part because... The Brandy Bucks aren't actually in the Shire, technically, but also because the Tooks are older yeah. than the Brandy Bucks and have been important for longer. That's true. Well, actually, it's a little iffy because technically the Brandy Bucks had the title of Thane before they gave it to the Tooks when the Brandy Bucks migrated to Buckland. The first two Thanes were old Bucks, but whatever. We're getting in the weeds here. But I would say the Tooks are sort of the biggest and most important family within the Shire. That is true. I mean, Bilbo's own mother was a Took which we get reminded hmm. of that's why he's adventurous. Oh yeah. Cause the Tooks. Yeah. Uh, so the Tooks have the title of Thane. Thane was a title uh, bestowed upon sort of the leader of the Shire when it was still part of the human kingdom of Arnor, the Northern kingdom, when Gondor was one big united realm. The, even once it got split into a Northern kingdom and Southern kingdom, the Northern kingdom essentially bestowed upon the house the title of Thane, which is like the rulers of the of the Shire in the name of the king. That's what a Thane See, is. See, I know it's spelled differently, but whenever I hear it, I just think I just think of Lydia and yeah. Skyrim. We're clear, I, I think mean, I am it, sworn to carry your burdens. 
it is. I mean, it is that exact same position, more or less. When like, and, you and, go to yeah, when, and it's, when it's the derived Yarl's, from exactly the same etym- etymological origin. Yeah, when the, when when the Jarl is like, I name you Thane of White Run. It's like you have an authority position at my grace, which the king of Arnor gave to yeah. you know had in the Shire. When the Northern Kingdom fell, they they just essentially still had a Thane going for a little while. And then they eventually made the Thane a hereditary title that the Took family took over. Now, according to Tolkien, over time, the position of Thane became less authoritative. So in this case, the the the, the Tooks and the Thane are um, you know are Marxist Leninists in that the authority of the state withered away over time. <laughs> a thing that famously happens. So a thing that is famously possible. <laughs> famously possible for the state to wither away because the Thane earlier on had more authority because it was literally a direct like counselor that answered to the king and eventually became the sort of just the head of the Shire. And then eventually it became again, a largely ceremonial position, especially since Arnor ceased to exist. Yeah, ceased to be. So the first couple Thanes were old bucks who then abdicated and gave it to the first, uh, the Took family. And then the Took family held it for, if I look here, if I'm counting, uh, 1, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. Pippin is the 20th Took Thane of the Shire. Jeez Louise. And hobbits live freaking ever. Hobbits live a hundred more or less. I mean, Bilbo was old for a hobby yeah, because of the was, ring, yeah. and he made it to a, he was a hundred. Famously, Lord of the Rings starts at his one hundred and eleventh birthday, so about a hundred years old. But then there's like thirty more years, and then he goes off. And then that's again, that's because of the ring. He's an yeah, exception. Aside from the old Duke, uh, who is also specifically really long lived for a hobbit, give or take a hundred years for hobbits. Um. Pippin, Pippin, again, through hereditary means, regardless of his adventures during the book, becomes Thane and is the 20th Took Thane, the 22nd Thane overall. And then gives and then Pippin eventually abdicates and gives it to his son, who he names Faramir because he's because they're all cool like that and named their kids after. Yeah, got a name Um, after people, you know, um, and then it just says that the an un, there's an unknown number of Took Thanes who continue their title into the Fourth Age. So it is an unbroken line of 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 heads of the Took family with a hereditary leadership position within the Shire. How would this work out if this were people? Yeah. How's it gone for people generally to have twenty generations of the same family holding an office of authority? Woof. That's looked pretty. Let's call up you know. I mean, I don't know be, the Habsburgs. Actually, to be fair, I don't know many even like European monarchs that made it twenty oh, generations. No. I don't know if anybody made it twenty generations in their own. I mean, to be fair, twenty generations is a long time. Or I should say twenty in a row. You know what I mean? Like, well, yeah, but, but it's still were, a long time. I don't know if there time. were ever twenty. I don't even know if there were ever twenty Habsburg monarchs total. Yeah, and I don't think there were. No, I mean, well, there's not. They're not a lot of unbroken chains, you know, like dynasties changed a lot. Um, yeah. Famously not super good at doing that. Yeah. Like maintaining um, the sort of unbroken. Especially because everyone who came next was like, oh, 
I will become the new origin of the dynasty. I will be remembered as the head of the dynasty, the, the, the beginning of this. I got to I got to start a subhouse. Man, of the dynasty. And you're like, dude, weren't you already the kid of someone who had their own? Yeah, don't worry. They tried to make their own thing. So happen? again, oh, Pippin, hereditary leadership position, regardless of his adventures. Let's talk about the third, uh, the third title in the Shire. The, the one, only... the, the third, mo- the, one of the three most important people, arguably the most important position in the Shire, supposedly, and the only one that's elective. This is the mayor of Michael Delving or Mickle Delving. Um, it's technically the mayor of that one city, but that city is considered essentially the capital of the Shire. So if you're the mayor of Mickle Delving, you're the mayor of the Shire. And it is the most important title among hobbits. The position is elective and held for seven years. Um, also presides over large events where leadership is wanted or necessary. Is chosen at the free fair in life, held every seven years at the White Downs. I'm wondering who's. I actually didn't look. Um, know who's allowed to vote? If it's every Hobbit, just the male Hobbits, I don't know. Probably just the landed gentry. If it's if we're consistent with the setting, it's probably Hobbits that own land or something. So over time throughout the third age, as the hereditary positions became uh, less important, this elected one supposedly became more important. Um, He's chosen every seven years at a big fair, presides over banquets and over big meetings. Um, He's also the postmaster and first sheriff. Hmm. Um, This one, uh, the mayor at the beginning of the Lord of the Rings is uh, a hobbit named Will Whitfoot. I have no idea what he's about. Um, really, I don't talk about it much. The fact that he got imprisoned by Saruman uh, during the scouring of the Shire. Uh, then Bill of Frodo acts as deputy mayor for six months while while Will recovers. Uh, and then later on, uh, Sam gets elected mayor seven times. Yeah, consecutively. Is it? Are they consecutively? Yep. Oh, yeah, they are. So seven times seven. That is a lot 44 I don't remember 7 times 7 that's 49 so sure Uh, I hate the number 7 it's stupid so math is awful Sam by virtue of being one of the companions that undertook the quest for the ring and becoming a somewhat as Tolkien would put it, like elevated Hobbit uh, gains a lot of, you know, notoriety and fame among the Hobbits and for being a leader during um, the scouring of the Shire. He gets old, he becomes the mayor of the Shire for 49 uninterrupted years. Now, Sam, however, is somewhat a positive note because Sam began as one of the lower class in the Shire. Sam did not is Sam is our only main character that did not come from a landed family of gentry. So he essentially got to like ascend classes through two things. One, like the adventure and his association with Aragorn, you know, the high King Elisar. Yeah. And two, all of Frodo's money. Because when Frodo leaves to go to paradise, he leaves all of his money to Sam. Sam gets rich quick. No, it took a long time, actually. <laughs> it took quite a while. It took him essentially being Frodo's like manservant for like 
his entire life up to that point. No, basically his entire life, his servant, uh, basically his entire life. Oh yeah, life no, I, yeah, I meant, I meant the adventure. And actually the whole quest for the, the whole quest for the ring takes like a year, like year and a half, something like that. So Sam is our like one feel good story within the Shire because he gets to go from being one of the poors to being mayor for 50 years but that to, in order to do so, he had to go on the most like impressive adventure a hobbit's ever done, become friends with the high king, and inherit a bunch of money from his rich friend. And the others would have gotten their title just by being them. And Merry and Pippin would have gotten theirs either way, which leads us, because Sam is inextricably linked from Frodo. Let's talk about Frodo and Bilbo. Frodo and Bilbo, while not having hereditary titles and coming from a family, the Bagginses, who are not as rich or important as the Brandy Bucks or the Tooks, are still incredibly wealthy. <laughs> They've lived uh, in their house in Hobbiton um, forever, more or less, at Bag End. And at minimum... All of the houses on Bagshot Row are owned by them. Oh, yeah. They're by the Bagginses. Once again, uh, it is landlords. Ex- it is explained in there that the, yeah, the, the Baggins side of Bilbo, because Bilbo is half Baggins, half Took. The Baggins side was the poorer of the two sides, but that's relative considering the Tooks are the most like important family in all of the Shire. Yeah. Uh, so he, his father essentially gave him bag end and bag shot row. But then he also inherited a bunch of other land from his mother. As explained, I was looking through it and looking up different explanations and stuff. And I found this sort of explanation that bag shot row specifically mentioned, but there are other lands involved as well, including largely farmland. Uh, Bilbo also, apparently, if you read the text, uh, did money lending. Ooh, that's okay. Although it's not not explained anywhere how much interest he charged. Mm. But Bilbo did lend money to people. But say, seeing as the Shire is pastoral, it's not like there's industry for him to be involved in. It's mostly just farming. So he inherited most of his land and then lived off of being a landlord. Again, think sort of late medieval England landed gentry. He is just a rich fop who hangs out and gets paid rent. The Gamgees have been living on Bagshot Row as tenants of the Bagginses for generations. Like they have just always been their gardeners. Yeah, Sam is long a, enough that they historically have the same job for them. Like Sam, Sam is Frodo's gardener because Gaffer was Bilbo's gardener. Like and that's on and, on. and on and on. That's how that works. Is essentially a man serve a hereditary servant, which if you remember, if you remember history quickly, those are serfs. The Gamgees are more or less serfs of the Bagginses. Now you could argue to what extent they truly are serfs, because like if the Gamgees wanted to move, can they? I think so. Yeah, probably. They're allowed to. So they're not like tied to the land the way a serf is, but Like also, I imagine within the Hobbit society Tolkien created just moving for the sake of moving isn't something anybody really did. 
it's it's sort of explained as being a wild thing for Frodo to want to move from Bag End out to, you know, whatever the fuck that secondary place was that he pretended he was moving to before he left the Shire. I don't even remember it anymore because it matters so little. But you know what I mean? Large like, Wendley Bag End. Have you seen the place? It's beautiful. It's beautiful. But you know what I mean? Like the idea of like moving to another town within the Shire is very like, oh, how would you do that for? I mean, to be fair, if you moved, it would just end up being the same. Yeah, but it could like be- landed gentry really can't move because they're tied to their land in a way. Tied to their land, but you know what I mean. It's and then, very, like, but then you had, yeah, yeah, not but, a thing you do. Yeah, but so then if the, but if the if if the gaffer and Sam moved, they would just move and be someone else's gardener. Mm-hmm. So it would essentially, be I move somewhere else, and the the skills I bring with me are we were the Baggins as gardeners for five generations. We can be your gardeners in this other place now. Yeah. Now, so the, the material situation wouldn't change based on where yeah. they went. So in the countryside, are there like hobbits that own their own and farm their own land? Probably. Some. Maybe. But the vast majority of farmland is owned by people like Bilbo and the Tooks and the Brandy Bucks. And, you know, like who just are essentially absentee landlords and you just, you know, pay your tithe or your rent to them every year. So you have the right to work the land. So Bilbo literally never worked a day in his life. Neither did Frodo. Until the whole adventure thing. No wonder he's... (laughs) Yeah, no wonder he's so soft when they start their adventure. Yeah. He doesn't do anything. No wonder Sam is the only competent one in the entire party. Yeah, the one who like picks everybody up and... And it is pretty clear in the book, Sam is the one that carries like everything. Oh yeah. He's the one who has the bag, the bag on his back. The big bag, because Sam is the servant. Like this, this gets spun and like, because they're also definitely displayed as being like friends. It is clear within the book that Frodo is his master. Like he refers to him as master constantly. Yeah, Sam they, is, they edited that for the movie for good reason, I think. Sam is Frodo's servant. And he's he's not his master in like a in like an interesting BDSM way. Like <laughs> he's his it's yeah, something tells me Tolkien to be a little like <gasps> to be a little like, taken aback by Frodo that. is the master in that like he is the landed gentry who is above you socially and therefore must be listened to and supported. Because he is your social better. That's how that works. And there's even weird getting into Tolkien's ideas a little bit and pulling back from his sort of ideation of, you know, feudal England, the way that he in the text looks down on people like the Sackville Bagginses and to a lesser extent, Ted Sandyman are because those are people who make money through like physical means the Sackville Baggins has made all their money through trade. They're the ones that are like Lotho is the main contact of selling pipe weed to Saruman. That's I mean, how the, that's how the Sackville Baggins is get rich at, at, in a way. It's kind of like, it's yet again, another thing that gets used in the scouring of the Shire to be like a attempted invasion of industrialization. Um, but also kind of, I feel like the way that landed gentry looked at, the up and coming bourgeois. Yes. Like when it really started to take off, 
and over and in a lot of places overtake gentry it is 100 percent a landed gentry's opinion it's really funny because the, it just means like, both groups know, fucking suck <laughs> yeah i mean it's a very much let them fight sort of thing <laughs> but we all know that like you know anyone who's forced to read like a i don't know a bronte sisters book or like a jane austen novel or something like all those books about sort of you know, Victorian England or whatever, you know how the opinions were between like landed families and fam and new money, you know, families who got rich through capitalism. Yeah. Through like owning businesses and working, working with air quotes. Yeah. Um, so the Sackville Baggins is working relative to aristocrats. Yeah. So the Sackville Baggins are looked down upon because they made their money through trade through like doing things. And they and Lotho ends up like, you know, being an accomplice for Saruman, at least for a little while. An accomplice of industrial society. Of industrial society. Ted Sandyman, who runs the mill, who which that's a that's a weird thing. I don't even that might be a whole discussion for another time. I think it is because a whole other discussion is Tolkien's, you know, opinions about sort of industrialization and, you know, progress versus nature and that sort of thing. But Ted Sandyman, the mill must exist in order to take care of grain, right? Like that's a necessary piece of technology. Yes. But to Tolkien, that is also essentially like a gateway into industrial society. And you see Ted Sandyman is one of the only people that benefits from like the scouring of the Shire because they build more mills than he's in charge of them or whatever. Yeah. Like he's not in charge of them because he's a hobbit and the humans are, but like he's, he, he's one of the people that welcomes Saruman at first before he gets betrayed. Um, and subjugated like everyone else because he is a gateway to industrialism. And so people that make their living that way are like looked down upon within the Shire. If you're not landed money, you don't count. I mean, again, it's a, it's another reflection on how it started with individual mill owners and, you know, water wheel factories, essentially. Yeah. I mean, it became, you know, that's how, which I mean does speak to Tolkien's actual knowledge of history. That's true. Uh, that like he knew clearly as a medievalist and someone who hated modernity, more or less, he was well knowledgeable on the fact that you know the people that you know, were the beginning of the sort of industrial capitalism were mill owners and uh, and you know mercantile tradespeople. Like these were the people that were the drivers of sort of extractive industrial capital. They were the ones who were cutting down all of his beloved trees to like build factories and run the mills, Mm -hmm. which again, I think his environmentalism is a place where Tolkien gets positive points in my book. And I, and I could argue in, you know, at some other point, how much that affected my view of sort of technology because of how much I read this book when I was young. Technology is Um, just Saruman. Yeah, I mean, again, that's just... Here to uproot the trees and kill us with weird, genetically altered Urukai. I mean, it's Saruman who's just a disciple of Sauron by the end. Sauron, who's a disciple of Morgoth. um, And all... And, well, Sauron and Saruman, who both at one point were students of Aule, who is the, the god of craftsmanship which is a whole other thing about the fact that basically being people that like make things with your hands and craftsmanship is 
a slippery slope into pride. How, how very interesting for a pure academic <laughs> to, to say. Love um, not too I mean, he is a big fan of the quote, uh, love not too much the work of thine own hands. Oh, that's true. How, uh, how very religious of him. There we go. Yeah. It's very much a thing that he incorporated. It's, in it's the how, old, it's the old, uh, <laughs> I suddenly thought of Stellaris and how spirituality and materialism are on opposite sides of the governance spectrum. That's right, baby. <laughs> um, I mean, in short, Tolkien's argument is that if you are a person that creates things, makes things like a Smith or, you know, that you're a creator of, of items that, that is, uh, uh, one of the easiest ways to become prideful because you become proud of the work you create. And then you eventually become convinced yourself that you are creating things that are above sort of God's creation. Yeah. Pride. Yeah. It's pride, which is like the cardinal of the sins. And that is pride is the main fall of Morgoth and Sauron and Saruman because you create things, you think your things are better than God's things. So then you become prideful, which then leads you to corrupting God's things to make more of your own things. And that's how industrialism works. Um, Now. Learning to hate industrial society through Christian theology. I mean, yes. Again, I don't think that's within the scope of this episode specifically, but uh, we will talk about that at some point. I think that his, that there's definitely his like love of nature and pastoralism is is inherently tied into his his uh, his Catholic faith. I think you can't extract the two from each other. It's sort of the I love God's creation too much that we shouldn't be despoiling it with smokestacks. But bringing it back, so the Shire. Best case scenario for most of us, you're essentially a tenant farmer. Now, that does come with the benefits that people have pointed out that a lot of sort of medieval-ish, because the Shire is also not really medieval. It's sort of on the edge of early modern with like their technology, the things they have, you know, like they drink tea and they like, you know have 11 Z, you know what I mean? Like the markers, the further away from the Shire you go, the more into like f- feudalism and ancient history you get. The Shire is v- very much like a sort of Victorian early modern type of place. Like, yeah. Like you were saying a uh, feudal, you know, mercantile, essentially yeah. the era when the commons started began beginning to be enclosed. But before it's, that happened, it's sort of like right before enclosure starts. Yeah. Um, you know, we're talking like, you know, the age of exploration, we're talking like when, like right before all like the trade markets in Amsterdam popped off, right? Like we're talking like right before that. Whereas if, when you get out to Rohan or Gondor, he he intentionally made it, they're essentially moving back through the mists of time into a further, more feudal past. That's how that works. It was intentional on his part, but so at best in the Shire for most of us, is you're just a tenant farmer or you work at the green dragon as like a brewer or you're Ted Sandyman in the mill. You know what I mean? Like you're still just essentially working a job. Again, it comes with some of those benefits that medieval like sort of serfs or peasants kind of had where like you do generally get more leisure time, more or less. You do get more days off sort of, 
Um, if you want to hear about that specifically, there's a podcast called um, We're Not So Different, which is about like compare, like looking at like sort of the, the feudal era, the medieval times and how what things actually were like compared to the popular narratives. They have a whole series of episodes about sort of free time and holidays and such for medieval peasants. Um, some of that's true. That whole thing you've seen on Twitter where it's like the medieval peasants had more vacation time than us. It's like true, but it's not true. It's complicated. They did work less. That is true. And so that's good. But at the same time, if you and I are hobbits in the Shire, we're still just paying rent to someone like Bilbo who sits on his fat butt all day doing, doing jack all translating <laughs> elvish poetry because he can. Yeah. What if you want to do that? Oh, nope. Can't do that. Sorry. Got a garden. Well, because I mean, Bilbo is also described as being sort of highfalutin because of how like learned and lettered he is. Like it was an outstanding thing and an act of great generosity that he bothered to teach Sam how to read and write. <laughs> Again, that's not portrayed in the movies, but it's in the book that the Gafford can't. The Gaffer's illiterate. Sam knows how to read and write because Bilbo liked him and decided to teach him. That's the only reason Sam knows his letters. Mm-hmm. So, oh, that's right. Now I'm, it's all coming back to me. That line specifically. Yeah, he knows his letters. Yeah. Because Bilbo taught him like for free because he's a generous guy. So, I mean, obviously that's fine for me because I'm illiterate now. <laughs> but like if you're anybody else, that's objectively worse in most people's opinion. It's pretty whack. To like you could be. I mean, Farmer Maggot, I think, knows his letters because he's a pretty successful, like, independent farm owner. But, like, for most of the people that are just like, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, Fortin Brass Harfoot, you don't know how to read or write. You just, like, sit on your farm all day. <laughs> like, that's it. That's your whole life. You go into town every once in a while. And, like, that's it. And you got to ask me, that's, uh, there's some downsides there, I would argue. Not super egalitarian, actually. No, not at all. Like, sure, life's pretty great if you go back and you're one of Pippin's, like, cousins who just gets to, like, dick around and be a rich toque and never really have to do anything. Or, you know, you're like Mary's younger brother who doesn't even actually have to have an inherited title or some shit. You just get to, like, sit around being a rich guy. And do absolutely nothing. You don't even have the responsibilities of office. Yeah, however limited like, those might be. However limited those might be. But even then, like Mary spends most of his life once he becomes master of Buckland, like writing books about herbs. Like he becomes a herbologist. I don't I don't <laughs> remember if that's the word for people that studies botanist. I, that's the word. I was about to say herbology is uh, a <laughs> made up thing. <laughs> um, most famous though not originally from, but most famous from uh, the Potter? esteemed J.K. Rowling's yeah. okay. Harry Potter no, series. Never mind. Um, yeah, Mary is essentially just a botanist. He's rich and sits around all day writing books about plants. It's like, ooh. And like exchanging them with people in Gondor who do the same thing. That's like his whole deal. Oh my God, he has Gondorian pen pals. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's, well, he's pen pals. He's literally pen pals with Faramir. Oh, that's like, right. He names his kid Faramir and Faramir who becomes like, you know, guardian of Athelion or whatever. A real job. Yeah. He actually has like 
feudal responsibilities. He's got shit he actually got to do. They like <laughs> they like exchange books about plants. Like that's that's what Mary does for the most of his life while he's master of Buckland. Pippin, I don't know, probably just smokes a bunch of pipe weed and hangs out. Oh and yeah, I, definitely. I, I could look it up. I don't. I'm not gonna. Like Sam, of all of them, is actually the one with the most responsibility. Probably a good thing because he's probably the, the only ma- one who can handle it. Yeah, the mayor of Mickle Delving actually has to do stuff from time to time. He handles the postal service. So, like, he actually has to be in charge of things. And that's fine because Sam's also the only one that actually knows how to work. Yeah. And so we've rambled a bit, but my conclusion here is that, like, while there's a lot of aspects of the Shire and Hobbit society, which I think are utopian, again, the fact that, like, everyone is supported enough that we've more or less eliminated the preconditions for most crime. There's essentially no cops. And in fact, cops showing up is like a, a hallmark of Saruman and progressive society that are bad, right? Like cops are explicitly a bad thing that they have to exist. You know, you get your sort of pastoral lifestyle. It's non-extractive more or less from the land. Um, a lot of positive things. The flip side of it, that though, is that there's also landed gentry who are essentially your social betters that are always going to be higher and more important and richer and better off than you. And there's nothing you can do about it because they're landed gentry. And even if you do, even if you do get rich somehow, they're going to look down on you for being a young upstart. Even if your family got that money, like three generations ago, like you're still new money to them because you know, the Tooks have been Thane for 20 generations. Oof. Like there's nothing you can do for that. Right. So you're still in a hierarchical structured class society. And you, it's just a society could, where the people have decided they're just not going to be mean. Yeah, it's essentially a hierarchical society where the lords have decided that it's they don't feel like being mean to the people under them simply through their own their inherent nature as hobbits. And they got super lucky that all of the surrounding nation was a big fan of them. Actually, to be fair. The only reason the Shire is peaceful is because the Rangers constantly patrol its borders and yeah. fight anything that would fuck it up. Yeah. So I think that's something we I didn't even I almost forgot to mention. The Shire maintains this peaceful, ignorant pastoralism, and Tolkien calls it like essentially ignorant of the outside world. Only exists because the Dunedain constantly patrol its borders, killing any orcs or wolves or trolls or orcs that might invade it due to their like the inherent good nature, duty bound culture of the Dunedain. Like well, being, say, there's just a lot of innocent people in the Shire. Yeah. So being, they do, they would be willing to protect that. Yeah. By, by virtue of being the descendants of the men of the Northern kingdom, the Dunedain see it as their, as their inherited responsibility to allow the Shire to continue its blissful, peaceful existence. And, and to a lesser extent, uh, Bree and the other two little towns, the other little towns near Bree, whose names I don't remember because they're not important. Because <laughs> we don't go there. So it's we not don't important. go there, but they um, are mentioned. But like, so despite this idyllic society, they partly exist because an outside force keeps them safe at all times. Yeah. And then once, you know, the main threat has passed, like you, it's still that. It's still that way because the former Dunedain leader becomes high king, becomes high king and reincorporates the Shire 
into the restored kingdom of Arnor. And to be clear, then makes the positions of mayor, Thane, and master of Buckland, three, the three official chancellors of the Shire that answer to the king. So those three positions that were largely ceremonial now become official titles within the restored kingdom of Gondor. Guys, it's okay. The king's a good guy. Yeah, let's not get started about philosopher kings. That's, I think, that we saved that for the episode about Tolkien's actual political beliefs, and we talk about the one honest to God anarcho monarchist. I'm serious. Yeah. I will, I wants, to live, wants to live in the Shire, but also philosopher king. There, I think there is one, there was only ever one honest anarcho monarchist. It was Tolkien. We'll talk about it at some other point. But so, yeah, again, the Shire, even so when the threats that used to plague their borders is gone, it's because they've been incorporated into a larger, still entirely feudal kingdom. Yes. And they just get to exist as their little bubble within the kingdom because Aragorn likes them. Wow. Did, did Tolkien not? I guess he wouldn't take 30 seconds to think, wow, what if somebody who wasn't as cool as Aragorn was king? Well, I mean, even within his book, Aragorn is an exceptional character. I mean, if you read the history of the former kings of Gondor, I mean, they lost their kings for a long time because some of the former kings were dumb cunts. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I, I agree, but it's like, oh, so this blissful experience of the hobbits will probably end eventually because that's a lot of really nice farmland. Yeah. Well, if you follow Tolkien's logic to its extent, we we currently live within the world that Middle Earth existed in, and where are the hobbits now? Gone. Oops, all gone. Oops, all displaced. Even in the opening to the book, I, I don't remember if the opening to Lord of the Rings, the opening to the Hobbit, even he explains that there are still hobbits around, but humans have become so overwhelming that hobbits now have essentially become so good at hiding from us that. We don't know that they're there anymore. So even within Tolkien's own world, that little idyllic shire does not last. And I guarantee you what happens, it eventually gets overrun by men because men eventually just take it over and colonize it. And the hobbits get slowly pushed out to the point where they are, you know, now, quote unquote, now where they technically are still around, probably. But they're so hidden from us that they might as well not exist. And they don't yep. remember. They don't remember the glory days of being in a, a, a semi-independent shire anymore. So again, we we've circled back to our original point, which is that even within this world, Tolkien sets up a utopia that, by his own logic, cannot exist and will cease to exist. Eventually. And will cease to exist even within the special conditions he created for it to exist. Even he acknowledges that it cannot continue indefinitely. Again, we're. I'm going to quickly compare this to Heinlein, who was like, if this is the way it was, it would be perfect forever. <laughs> mm-hmm. Pretty much explicitly is like, this is forever perfection. Okay, perfect. Now we're done. I mean, he takes time out of the novel to explain why there's never been a revolt against their new government and why there never will be. They're like, well, everyone who ever could fight ever is. Yeah, anyone, anyone who has the spirit to fight joins the military and therefore gets indoctrinated and therefore can't fight a rebellion. Like, where the hobbits in or, require mag magnanimity, 
require the men, the humans around them to be magnanimous. Yeah. Which can only last so long. <laughs> yeah. Again, by his own worldview. We are in the age of man now. Yeah, by his own worldview, the the Shire is on a timer. Because it's, it's the age of men. Tolkien is the only not entirely shitty return guy. Entirely. I'm not going to say, not going to say, I shouldn't say he's the only one. People are going to come at me with a lot of comments about all these other people. Look, I'm being hyperbolic. And yeah, a lot of aspects of his return shit are bad. I do like some of them. Because I do like trees. And I don't really like industrial capitalism. He and I can agree on that. That burning all the trees in a giant smokestack is bad. And that I do wish some trees would come to life and beat the shit out of industrial capital. Yeah, you know, that watching, watching some ants come back and fucking find, I don't know, just like just t- like rampage through Texas, tearing down oil derricks. Cool. Pretty fucking great. Be pretty great. Cover a big swath of Texas in a in a, in a like a like a Huron, like a Huron forest. Just transplant a bunch of trees to like the middle of Texas. It'd be pretty dope. But obviously some parts of his ideology are like problematic and bad. All I'm saying is, you know, that he's like the one return guy who isn't doing it entirely for like white nationalist reasons. I don't really have any more thoughts except that the Shire is actually super hierarchical kind of most of the time. Would probably not be that great for most of us if we live there and can only exist uh, through a very specific set of circumstances that he doesn't believe can work. <laughs> Which, to be fair, is sort of a, uh, a central to his idea that the world we live in is not one in which perfection can be because it's been marred by evil from its inception. But I still thought it would be an interesting or useful little you know talk to have. Do you have any final thoughts? I've rambled a lot this episode. That's because well, you know, I'm I'm sort of the Tolkien guy, yeah, so I have so I get I'm, to rant. I'm totally okay, you know, letting you kind of take take the reins on an episode like this because I I wouldn't be able to add anywhere near as much. So, look, we've all got our specialty subjects. Yeah, mine's, you know, the professor is my specialty subject on this podcast. That and sports, but we never talk about sports. So uh, yeah, yeah. No, tune in for a bonus episode where I talk about the labor politics of international soccer or something. Just kidding. Not on not this podcast. Hey, you know, if you ever, you know, want to invite somebody on to talk about that, cool. Bonus episode. <laughs> Good bonus episode. I'll probably check out. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Any final, any final thoughts? Do you want to live in the Shire? I if, mean... If- even if you could live in the Shire and it's like golden sort of age, which is like most of the third age. And I'm assuming most of the fourth age, would you choose to essentially be an, an, an equal level person? You know, I'm saying like socially sort of, cause you can't say, oh, I'm going to move to the Shire and be Pippin. I mean, yeah, I'm a, I'm a dumbass in this world too, but like, I'm not going to go suddenly be a rich one in another world. Uh, so I mean, imagine, might- imagining your current station, just Would because you the trade it, just because the place is, it's still Hobbit land, where people are still nice even when in positions of power. I I might be willing to be a Gamgee in a in a in a. It would still suck, but my life's you know, how different is it 
really. I said I might be willing though. I think this is actually this is honestly tough for me. I don't. I just thought of honestly, this. Honestly, if I'm gonna be honest, like how I grew up, it'd probably be closer to me being in like Farmer Maggot's family or something than it would be. Mm-hmm. Which, which again, not that bad. Not that bad because Farmer Maggot is a, is I think an independent farmer. He's he's le petite bourgeois. Yeah, I mean he's a he's a fucking oh shit. What was the it's a fucking kulak? I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, no, but like. It is his land is referred to as Farmer Maggot's property, so I think by definition, like he owns his own farmland. So, like, that's actually not that bad. I mean, the problem of that being is that if he's doing that much land, he might have people working for him. He does. He's got his. He's got his sons, and I think. And I think. I think he has. I think he has some other ones too, if I remember correctly. He has some other hobbits that like come and work for him. Like he has like farm employees because he does have a lot of land. So he, yeah, he he's again real like le- sort of petite bourgeois, I guess. Yeah, again, I mean, he kind of is like a rich peasant, more or less. Yeah, like he's a he's a peasant, but he's a rich peasant, yeah. which did exist. There were lots of rich peasants, like not lots relatively, but like there, there were. were some. If you if you translate my position, how I was growing up, I would be a Gamgee, like in in the Shire. Like my dad was just a laborer in a factory. Right. So if you translate that over, that means my dad is just like a farmhand. I, I've, uh, I guess the, the closest thing would my dad would be working for the only thing the mayor does. The postal service. The postal service. Um, um, but, so we, I mean, yeah, we were still blue, you know, we, my parents didn't own a business. Collar. We were the still blue collar. blue collar. Yeah. But um, even given all of that, would I, would I choose to be, the son of a farmhand. Now the question or a, is, Amji in the Shire. The question isn't, is the Shire that good? The question is, is current society, is current bad, society enough bad enough that the Shire is better? I, I think we, we, I think I would say yes. Yeah. I was about to say, I think we have a bit of a biased perspective on that. Mostly because we exist within this world and the grass is always greener on the other side. But, um, that is true. The hobbits would fucking kill for a lot of the food we have access to. Absolutely. But hobbit food also. Pretty good. Looks pretty great. I think the only the, I think the only people the only pe- pe- book we've talked about where the people wouldn't switch for our food is Redwall. Oh, yeah, because uh, they, they, they go into intricate detail. Yeah, their food's already great. Uh, but I do think that hobbits, though, I think inherently would not want to live in the world that we live in. They wouldn't trade place with us because oh, no. it's, it's too industrial. It's too busy. It's too big. It's too loud. It's yeah. too like honestly, this- not nah, like screw it. I would. I would live in the shop. Yeah. I'd be. I would I, do I it. Would. Uh, but I mean, I think I also have part of me that is even you know the Shire aside, more drawn to that sort of more independent pastoral lifestyle. Than I am to sort of you know, like a techno futurism type of life. Oh well, yeah, just period. I mean, I don't mean that disparagingly towards you know my anarchist friends that are into you know technology or any of that sort of thing. It's just not for me. I would. I'm the older too, I get, the older I get. Homo for tech. The older I get, the more I like the idea of living on a uh, on a farm. Like when I was a kid, I wanted to live in a city. And now every year that goes by, I'm like, man, living out, living out in the countryside would be would be pretty sweet. 
Yeah. If I think so, I think the older I get, the more hobby hobbity I've gotten. I mean, I feel like, yeah. I mean, personality wise, I feel like I've always been a hobbit. (laughs) Every passing year, I become more hobbit. It's like, was it carcinization where everything becomes crab? Yeah, everything become crab. <laughs> it's hobbitization. Every uh, over time, I inherently become a hobbit. Hobbit. Where I, I would prefer to sit at home with good food, uh, and that's about it, and have multiple meals a day. A lot of them, like eight. I mean, yeah. Also, I'd be enormous. All right, that's it. I think that's a new test we should institute whenever we talk about a book that has a like a utopian element to it is would you want to live there? Uh, the, the Shire, I say yes. Obviously, Starship, Starship Troopers is Starship a hard Troopers no. Starship Troopers can go fuck itself. It's a hard no. Um, if we'll anyone about- says yes to that world, that is... A, listen, if anyone, not be your friend. if anyone is out there and they're in a nerdy-ass relationship with a nerdy-ass person, if you or, or just even know anyone who's a nerdy-ass person and you get the impression that they would enjoy living in the Starship Troopers universe, run, run far up with them. and push fast. them down a well. Just, just scream and run GTFO. Yeah. yeah. GTFO. If they say they want to live in the Shire, maybe they might be cool. Yeah. I about to say you got a 50, 50 shot there, you know, yeah. 50%, 50, 50 shot. They might, they might just be cool. Like, you know, based sort of self, you know, self-sustaining farmers, you know, eco- ecologically sustainable, or they might be weird white nationalists. Got to find that out the hard way. Yeah, you know, that's trial and error. You should be able to figure that part out pretty quick, though. And, you know, next time when we talk about uh, William Morris, we'll see how we feel about his utopian if we'd want to live there. Yeah, it's probably a little better than we'll I see. Think, so, well, I mean, not there's not much that would be worse. Yes, <laughs> um, you're right. But thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, if you didn't know, we have a Patreon. You can check it out. We do about one bonus episode a month uh, where we talk about a non-book thing. Like We've talked about Star Wars. We've talked about the Starship Troopers movie, stuff like that. Otherwise, you know, all of our social media links are in the description. And thank you for listening. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you.